is what heaven sounds like. We praise you. Lift up your voice and sing that this is what living looks like. This is what freedom feels like. This is what heaven sounds like. We praise you. We praise you. This is what living looks like. This is what freedom feels like. This is what heaven sounds like. We praise you. We praise you. This is what living looks like. This is what freedom feels like. This is what heaven sounds like. We praise you. Welcome to Central Baptist Church here in Livingston, Texas. Each and every one of y'all, I'm excited to be here in the house of the Lord singing and praising alongside each and every one of you. If you are a guest with us this morning, I want to extend a welcome especially to you and let you know that we would love to connect with you further. And in order to do that, we've got some connection cards in the seats in front of you. If you want to grab one of those, fill out some basic information so that we can follow up with you throughout the week, that would be great so that we can help you get plugged in in the life of our church. Also, you can use those cards, whether you're a member or a guest, to put prayer requests or praise reports that you'd like us to join with you in prayer about. You can also indicate whether you'd like to be contacted to be able to pray with a staff member on that card. Uh, if you came this morning prepared to give of your tithes and offerings, you can also find uh, offering envelopes in the same spot in the seat backs in front of you. You can uh, deposit your offering and drop that off on your way out this morning. You can also give online at the church website or drop off any offerings that you have at the church office during the week. Uh, this morning we'll be observing the Lord's Supper and Pastor Sonny is going to come up and uh, prepare us for that. Uh, at this time we'll also have the men come forward and prepare to uh, distribute the elements for the Lord's Supper. Good morning y'all. I want to invite our men to come forward. They're going to uh, lead us and help serve the supper today, but I want to just, uh, first of all, um, uh, welcome you to the table, and for those of us this morning that are part of our church family um, and are followers of Jesus Christ, of course, we welcome you to take of the Lord's Supper today, and if you're not a part of our church, but you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and uh, you've given your life to Christ, and then we want to uh, welcome you, of course, to the table, but here's what I would say to you this morning if you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Um, you know, when we come to this table, it is a moment in which we remember um, what, what Jesus Christ has done for us, both um, from the grave and um, 
and on the cross, and specifically on the cross as we remember the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed to give us the opportunity to do what we're doing right now. We don't come to this place. There is no church without what Jesus did beginning both in his ministry that led to that upper room that eventually led to the cross and from the grave. But we have life today, and Jesus taught us to remember um, all that, uh, that he did for us and this covenant that we have with him. And so we want to welcome you to observe, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, uh, but to not take the Lord's Supper, but just to observe all that we're doing as Christians. Um, you know, as Christians, this is a season, a time that we not only remember, but we also spend some time reflecting on our own heart and uh, making sure that our heart and our minds are right before God as we come to this table. So we're going to serve you this morning as we sing a great hymn of the faith. You remain seated as we serve you. And uh, during that time, you sing, you pray. And then at the conclusion of that song, we'll, uh, we'll take together the Lord's Supper, okay?
salvation and lead me home. What joy shall fill my heart? And I shall bow with hope. you to take your two cups and separate them into a one and one cup and separate them into two. We're going to take the bread first in just a moment. I want to read from uh, uh, a passage that brings us and reminds us of where we are today as we worship. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 beginning in verse 17 says this, therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen to this verse. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, when the the night before Jesus was arrested, the night that Jesus was arrested and was put on the cross, he went to the, of course, we know the familiar scene of the upper room, and that's where we are this morning, remembering that. It says, and when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, 
which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, which is why we come to the table. So let's take this morning this bread that signifies and reminds us of the body that was broken. Father, as we acknowledge your willful sacrifice, your broken body, to reconcile us to you and the Father, let us reflect on our sinful nature and the tremendous gift you've given to us of everlasting life. Pray that we will recognize that and that in our lives and in our community, people will see you through us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. In the same scene there in the upper room, this is what it says. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten the bread, this is what Jesus said. This cup that is poured out for me, or for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so let's this morning remember the juice that we drink. Let's remember the blood that was shed for us on the cross. Father, we're, we're humbled as we partake of this bread and this, this cup. Father, we, can't, we just can't fathom what you did for us. We did nothing to earn it. Your mercy and your grace, Father, that you poured yourself out for us. Let us always be mindful of, of that gift that you've given us, the gift of salvation, Father. Thank you so much for the forgiveness of sin. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, man. You can be seated. Let's all stand and let's continue to worship through uh, worship and through song this morning.
The demons run and flee at the mention of your name, King of Majesty. There is no power in hell or any who can stand before the
be seated this morning. Great singing and worshiping the Lord today, and uh, it's good to see all of our generations coming together worshiping the same God in the same way, and so we're thankful that you're here this morning to, uh, to join us for worship. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes with me as we pray and uh, prepare our hearts for what God wants to say to us this morning. Father, thank you this morning for the time that we've had to come together, see friendly faces. Uh, thank you for the opportunities that we've had to encourage each other and lift each other up the hugs in the hallways, the, the, the greetings in the hallways, the greetings at the doorways, the greetings where we're seated. Thank you, Father, for um, the gift of the local church. We are here today only because of what you've done, Jesus. We just remembered that. We've remembered that through our music. We've remembered that through the table. Lord, we are reminded of that when we look into each other's faces and we see the joy in the midst of suffering, the joy in the midst of hardship, we see, Lord Jesus, your deliverance. We see, Lord Jesus, your uh, faithfulness in our life, for we are living testimonies as we walk through these hallways of your grace and your mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. We are all recipients of that. Not as though, Lord, we do not suffer, not as though we don't go through difficult seasons and days and 
discouragement and depression and all of those things. We do. But we also walk with victory. And we thank you for that this morning, being that is a testament of the gospel that you have changed our hearts with. Jesus, you've transformed our hearts, so we are living testimonies of that. We see plenty of the opposite of that when we walk our community, when we go to school, when we see people come into our place of businesses completely dejected, when we see the things going on in our community that rip our heart out, um, the pain and the suffering of the world and the things that are going on around the world, we see so much of the opposite of that. And then we come together as a local church and we remind ourselves just of the living hope that we have, as First Peter speaks of. Jesus, the living hope that we have, the answer that we have to life, the fact that you have a purpose and plan for our lives. You know us intimately. You, Lord, have stepped into our life and given us hope. You've given us joy. You've given us peace in our heart when we should not have peace, when we should not have hope, when we should not love, we should hate, we should resent, we should be angry. And yet, Lord, you transform our hearts into the opposite of that. You make us a loving people. You make us a people that care about one another, genuinely care about the needs of others more than you, we care about ourselves. None of that is manufactured, Lord. None of that comes from the world. None of that certainly doesn't come from our flesh, but it does come from your spirit. And we thank you that we're spiritual people. That Holy Spirit, you live inside of those of us in this room that have surrendered our lives to you, Jesus. God, you have changed our hearts and you are changing our hearts. And you are making us into a people as a congregation, a people who love you, a people that are focused on the gospel, a people that are focused on communicating with you through prayer, a people that believe soundly that, Lord, we are the light, not because we have become the light on our own, but because you have made us the light in a dark world, in our dark families sometimes, in our dark schools, in our dark places of work sometimes. God, you've made us the light. And so we want to shine brightly today, not in order to point people to me or to you or to us rather, but to point people to you, Lord in heaven. So God, we thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. We pray that you would, Lord, open our hearts and minds. Lord, in a room this size, we have so many distractions, so many things going on in our minds right now this morning. But what we pray for in this singular moment, all of our music, has led us to this moment, our praying has led us to this moment. We wanna hear from you. And we want your voice to be the most dominant thing in our hearts and our minds this morning. Because living in a world where there are a thousand voices, thousands of voices that influence us, there is only one voice that matters, and that's you. So speak into our life through your word this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians, and uh, we're going to be looking at a very important passage, actually a passage we looked at a week ago, but we're going to unpack two verses from that passage this morning and a little more detail as we consider this morning what it means to know Christ, what it means to know the Lord in every form, in every fashion. Um, if you think about it, all of us are recipients of driven people. We're all recipients of driven people who had ideas, what started as an idea led to the design of a big lake that sits right here in Livingston. 
They were driven to build that lake. Uh, We're recipients of the vehicles that we drive, recipients of driven people who had an idea of a particular design, and they engineered that vehicle, that truck, that particular feature on your car that led you to be a recipient of that driven idea. The technology in your pockets, think about the cell phones in your pockets, the iPads that you might be carrying with you this morning, the computers that we use day to day, week to week, all because of driven people that had an idea that came up with that idea, worked that idea, engineered that idea, passionately pursued that idea, and they became a reality, and so we use them in our lives every day, our businesses Maybe a business that was an inherited business passed down to you began as an idea in the mind of one person, the idea in the mind of someone, and they worked really hard to build that business and then you inherited it and now you're making it better. Because that's what we're called to do as small business owners, right? You make the business better. You work it. You continue to make it more profitable. You created a good environment for that business. But it began with one person having a driven mindset or a driven heart. Uh, when you research the habits of driven people, okay? A lot of times there are lots of things that are written on the habits of driven people, but there are kind of four things that kind of bubble up to the surface in the lives of really driven people who come up with, who have ideas that are driven to see those ideas come to fruition. One is that they're not afraid to fail. And so they'll try new things, even though they know they're going to fail, but they're not, try, they're not afraid of failure, Another one is the, one of the four is that they create daily goals and then they tra- take those goals and they work to achieve those goals. So they're not afraid to fail. They try new things. And then they come up with daily goals and they work to try to achieve those, those goals. And a third kind of habit of driven people is to work. They work to succeed. They're lifelong learners. That sounds very uh, kind of cliche, if you will, that they, they work to succeed. Of course, they're going to work to succeed, but they, they work to try to figure out new things, new ways of doing things so that they can succeed in what their, their idea is. They're driven to do that. And then finally, they don't play the victim. That's one of the things that consistently bubbles up to the surface of driven people and a habit of driven people. They don't play the victim. They have no excuses. They make no excuses. They just keep pushing forward and moving forward. What is your aim in life? What are you driven by? These are driven people with ideas and things and, that we all have in front of us and have in our pockets and have in our parking lots and have all around us. We are recipients of driven people, but what are you driven by? In other words, what do you know what, or what you know um, or what, what drives you is going to impact your life in every form and fashion. Now, I don't know what, you, what drives you as a Christian if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe it's just hearing a good sermon going home. Maybe it's giving a certain amount of money and seeing that investment come to fruition. Maybe that really scratches your itch. Maybe that, that, that really drives you. Maybe it's that relationship or it's that serving in the local church, whatever it is that drives you. I don't know what drives you. Maybe it's, man, I hope they play my song today. I hope we get to sing my song, my favorite hymn of the faith or my favorite praise and worship song. I don't know what it is that drives you. But the Lord saves you and he saves me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the room this morning, for one singular purpose, which is what we're going to work through today. Two verses, this we're going to unpack. Paul, he had, before he had committed his life to Jesus Christ, had a lot of confidence in his, 
inheritance and what he had inherited, the titles he inherited and his cultural lineage. He was also very confident, if you will, in what he had accomplished in his life. The specific things he had accomplished on a religious level, on a professional level. He was really proud of those things. It is what defined him. It is what marked his life. The things that he inherited and the things that he had accomplished in his life. And before he gave his life to Christ, those things mattered the most to him in his life. But we know, as we saw last week, all of that had changed. Jesus had become his treasure. Jesus had become his singular focus in life. Jesus had become, and knowing Jesus and understanding his relationship he had found now in Jesus had changed his life, and he had one singular goal in mind. That's to know Christ. That's to know him. Which sounds strange, because we're not talking about knowing about Jesus. We're talking about knowing Christ. This is what Paul says. Look at the text with me this morning. Look at your Bibles, beginning in verse 8. We're going to only focus on verses 10 and 11, but I want you to see verses 8 through 11 once again. We read these last week. This is what Paul says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. What's he talking about there? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now here's the two verses we're going to unpack. That I may know him. He comes back to it, remember? He just said it in verse 8. He's coming back to it in verse 10. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had counted the cost. He had had this spiritual exchange. He had moved the gains in his life, so to speak. If you're a small business owner, you get ledgers. You get gains and losses in your business. This is how Paul's describing his own life. He had tremendous gains in his life, things that he had inherited, things he had accomplished. And these were in his gains column. And what he did in his life is he had had a spiritual exchange. He had taken the things that he saw that gave him value, gave him purpose, gave him meaning. It shaped his identity both with his family, friends, whoever was around him, the pats on the back, whatever it was, that was in his gains column. And he had taken all of those and he had moved them to the loss column. And he said, here's one thing I've gained, Christ. Everything else is rubbish. That's what he says. But then he says something very strange and very peculiar. He talks about this idea of knowing Christ. Now, it began with faith, and he talks about that in verses 8 and 9. He talks about that it only comes through faith, and that's true, that we are saved By God's grace through faith alone. We say that, we believe that, we talk about that. Faith in Christ leads us to a lifelong goal, however, of knowing Christ. A faith in Jesus Christ begins with believing in him, surrendering our lives to him, but it begins a lifelong goal of knowing Christ. What are you aiming at? What are you aiming at? Paul's aim was to know Christ. What is your aim? You see, what God wants us to see this morning out of this text is very clear that the aim of trusting Christ is to know Christ. The aim of trusting Christ is not that you would sit in the seat you're in this morning. The aim of Christ is, in in your trusting Christ, is not that you would come to a church or maybe give some money or maybe serve a little bit. It's not those things. It is to know him. He's the prize. He's the treasure. 
It's to really understand what God says about knowing him. But here's the thing, and here's how he unpacks this in verse 10 and 11. And it is so eye-opening, and it really gives us a window into Paul's heart and his mindset and how he made his decisions. You see, to know Christ comes, listen, when we experience both his power and we participate in his sufferings. When we experience that power and we participate in those sufferings. Paul here is being so vulnerable to the church in Philippi. These are his friends. These are people he had labored with. These are people he had witnessed to, some of which had given their lives to Christ. He had stayed there. He'd planted his life there. He'd loved these people. He tried to show them how to do church, and then he left them. And Paul's writing back to them from prison, by the way, and he's writing to them, and he is speaking into their lives, but he's being very vulnerable. He's sharing his personal story. But as we saw a moment ago in verse 8, he's going to say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He's going to come back to this in 10, that I might know Christ. He doesn't say, and he's not talking about that he would know about Jesus. Of course he knows about Jesus. How many of us in the room have never heard the word Jesus before? How many in our community today here in Livingston or in Polk County or in this part of East Texas hasn't heard about Jesus? Everybody's heard about Jesus. It's not about knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Christ. There's a major difference. Knowing Christ. So he's not talking here about knowing about Jesus, knowing about God, knowing about Christ in that sense. He's not focused on facts or Bible knowledge. Paul's not approaching his life and saying, man, I've been saved by, by God's grace through my faith. And man, I really want to know a lot about what Jesus said. I want to know this. I want to know that. I need to go to this Bible study. I need to go to that Bible study. I need to do this. I need to do that. I didn't hear that before. Let me hear that. Let me hear this. Let me hear this. It's not Bible facts. It's not knowledge. Paul's not trying to jam-pack his mind and his, his heart with this intellectual biblical knowledge. There's something deeper and more significant that Paul's talking about here, right? He wants to get to know Jesus personally, intimately, experientially in his own personal life. You see, saving faith is not the finish line. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, it's not the finish line. It's not, okay, great, I'll coast until Jesus takes me home. Praise God. No, it's something deeper, more significant in my life. Oftentimes in our life, we can get to that point where we think this is the finish line. Oh, and that's where we get to a place of stopped, where we stop growing. We stop growing in the journey of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get caught up in that. Sometimes God does something big in our life and it doesn't take us long before we start to miss him and when he's right in front of us. Just ask the Israelites. God splits the Red Sea, if you read, this past week. He splits the Red Sea and 72 hours later, the Israelites are grumbling and complaining to Moses. It took them 72 hours to take their eyes and mind off of, off of what, what, who they had and what they had and put their eyes on something that they thought they didn't have. Their bellies were hungry and they're thirsty. And they start to complain against Moses. It only took 72 hours. God had split the Red Sea. He had just taken them out of Egypt after over 400 years. All of these plagues God's glory is, is shown. God's glory is displayed. He splits the Red Sea. They can see the chariots and the Egyptian army being washed up. And then they see the dead bodies on the banks of the riverside, it says. And it took just 72 hours before they start to complain to Moses. 
and their focus was on what they didn't have, but they were missing what they did have, and that was Almighty God in front of them. And we can, we can miss what God is doing in our life. And this isn't about just knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Christ. So Paul sets out here in these two verses, verses 10 and 11. He says, we can know Christ in two ways. We experience his power, we participate in his suffering. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. We, we can know Christ when we experience the power of his resurrected life, the resurrected life. I mean, this is what verses 10, verse 10 says, that I might know him and the what? The power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. What does that mean? Just acknowledging, yeah, I've got life now. What does it mean that he's digging deeper into this? Paul's goal was to experience more of the resurrected life. He had experienced it in Acts chapter 9, there on the road to Damascus, and Paul had been radically saved. Saul had been radically saved by Jesus. He had been changed by Jesus Christ. He had believed in Jesus Christ, but he knew nothing. All of the intellectual knowledge that he had, all of those accolades that he had, all of those, those, those inherited traits and inherited things that he had received, now he understood that something is different is going on and he had moved those gains over to the losses column and now he had gained Christ. But here's the thing, the power of the resurrected life in Jesus is abundant. It is abundant. Paul was experiencing and wanted to experience more of the abundant life. Oh, this is what Jesus promises you and I. In John chapter 10, 10, he says, I have come that they might have what? Life and have it what? More abundantly. This is what Jesus promises. It's not the destination only of eternal life. We're not sitting here waiting for heaven to arrive. No, we're waiting or we, we can experience this abundant life here on earth. An abundant life of fullness and joyfulness and it's meaningful. It's not lifeless Christianity. It's not lifeless uh, of, of life where we're just pursuing all kinds of things. No, it is full of joy. It's full of meaning. It's full of purpose. I'm going to have this abundant life that Jesus promises us. And the power of the resurrected life also grows in our life the longer we walk with Jesus. Those of you who have been Christians for decade upon decades and decades and you've read your, your, the Bible and you've studied the Bible and you've prayed and you have this intimate walk with God, are you not closer with Jesus Christ today than you were 30, 40 years ago? Do you not see things differently today than you did when you were in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s? Those of you who have walked with Jesus really intimately for a long period of time understand this idea of growing. And by the way, that never ends the 70, the 80-year-old, the 90-year-old, still growing to become more like Jesus Christ, understanding the abundant life. This is what God promises us. There is power in this resurrected life, and it grows. The more we walk with Jesus Christ, we have, this more, we have more intimacy with God. The longer you walk with God, the more you submit to his authority in your life, the more you live out the Christian life, the more you live out the word of God in your life, the more you'll grow in intimacy towards God and God begins to transform your life. There is a power in the resurrected life and a transformed life of a sinner. This is why when you think about it, it's amazing. It's supernatural and it's powerful. Because when you think about it, think about where all of us came and where all of us are today. You see, the miracle of the transformed life goes like this. I'll give you two people. 
Maybe there's one who's a fictitious person who grows up in a very wealthy home or maybe just a very middle to upper class home. Had a stable family, a mom and a dad and so forth. Maybe a good moral home. Maybe one day after hearing about the gospel in Jesus Christ over and over again, maybe they came to faith in Jesus Christ radically saved from their sins. On the other hand, there is a second person who comes from a rough background. Mom and dad are drug addicts. Maybe mom or dad is incarcerated in prison today. Maybe one of them has been abusive and doesn't have custody of that individual. Maybe they didn't come from a moral home in that sense. They don't know what a mom and a dad are. They don't even know what a marriage is, all of those kinds of things. By the way, we have that in our church in multiple ways. You can go to our schools and you'll see it rampantly all over. So many students. Just ask any teenager. But here's the thing. Even that person can come to a place in their life where they surrender their life to Jesus Christ and they now experience the resurrected life. Two different people coming from two different walks of life. One coming from a very moral, upstanding family with a mom and dad and a nuclear family. And then one coming from just a broken home, broken family. Maybe there was abuse there. But both in the same place, spiritually. Both lost both in need of Jesus Christ, both in need in uh, uh, having a need of hope, having a need of real true joy, having an understanding and a need for Jesus Christ to reconcile their life. And both come to faith in Jesus Christ and now both come both from the same place and they arrive at the same place, both equal in the eyes of God. That's the beauty of the resurrected life. That's the beauty of what Paul's even describing here and talking about here, the power of the resurrected life. Different journeys, lifelong, same destination. You see, the resurrected life is not about emotion. It is not about what you feel necessarily. It is about the truth that you discover and the truth that you need to experience in your own personal life. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at this text with me this morning. It says in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is what Paul's saying in, in the church, to the church in Ephesus in the same way, this resurrected life. Your aim, listen to me, your aim should be to experience more of the power of the resurrected life. My aim in life should be to experience more of the power of the resurrected life. You know how you do that? You submit to the word of God in your life. You allow the spirit of God to fill you regularly and invite him to take ownership of your thoughts, your emotions, your preferences, your heart, to get your eyes off of what you don't have and get your eyes on what you do have, and that's him, so that he would fill you, that he would grow you. And when you come to the word of God, don't just get in the word, let the word get in you. Because when the word gets in you, the word will change you. When the word changes you, the word will change the people around you. 
When the world changes the people around you, he begins to transform the people around you into followers of Jesus Christ as well. Both your schools, our small businesses, our families, our friend groups, our streets, all of the people in our life, we allow the word of God to transform us. We pray for the resurrected life. We, that we would experience more of that power that Paul's talking about there in Ephesians that he's referencing here about his own personal life when he says in verse 10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Not know about Jesus and his resurrection, but to understand and understand the significance, the depth of the power of that resurrection and how it comes to bear on his life. Do you know him as Savior and Lord? You see, to get to that point, to experience the resurrected life, you've got to experience Jesus Christ to be your Savior and your Lord, to be resurrected from your sin and from the death in your own life. Do you know him? If you don't know him, at the end of our service, I'm going to give you a chance to know him, to experience that resurrected life for the first time today in your life. Listen, Christian, we're called to live the, and understand and experience the power of the resurrection-wrecked life. We will know Christ in that way, but we also participate in his sufferings. Look at what Paul says. He thinks about his own personal life, and he says that I might know him in the power of his resurrected, of the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. Now, that's, that's heavy. Just think about that. Share in his sufferings? You think about what Paul's saying here. He wants to share in the sufferings of Jesus. The power of the resurrected life, right, enabled Paul to endure suffering in his life. He struggled, didn't he? If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that when he became a follower of Jesus, it was not all roses and rainbows. He was beaten, he was betrayed. By the way, when he's writing this, he's writing it from a position of being in prison. And in chapter 1 in Philippians, if you'll remember, Paul says as he's writing from prison, not only did he take his worst beating in the city of Philippi, you can go there today and see where Paul was beaten. He took his worst beating there in the city of Philippi. But while he's in prison, and he references this in chapter 1, there were those who were street preachers, those who were people out there who were taking advantage of Paul in prison, and they were they were pointing them to themselves and they were building up their own personal profile and power and position in the lives of people. And so he's experiencing that as well. People are spreading lies about Paul, countless lies about Paul time and time again. This was the cross, set, so to speak, that he bore for the sake of following Jesus with his life. But I don't want this to be lost on you, nor is it lost on me. Before suffering, because the following of Jesus Christ comes, there is the power of the resurrected life. Oh, it would be different if Paul says in verse 10, that I might know Christ and his sufferings and the power of, of his resurrected, re resurrection. But no, he was had already experienced and was experiencing the power of this resurrected life that enabled him to endure sufferings as he walked through difficult days. Paul knew his sufferings were meaningless. Just a blip on the radar in light of eternity. God was doing something with them. He also knew that at the same time, none of it in his life was meaningless. God was doing something in his life through his suffering. You see, here's the thing. When you suffer for Christ, you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not alone. You're not alone in 
and what you experience, what you go through for the sake of following Jesus. Jesus himself experienced tremendous suffering. Eventually, it leads to death, right? This is what Jesus, or this is what Paul says about his own life, that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, he's not sitting here inviting these things upon his life, but what he is saying is he's inviting more of what it means to be like Jesus on his life. There's a woman who is a famous author. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. Maybe you've heard of her before. She's written many books. Over 55 years, she has suffered as a quadriplegic in her life. At the age of 17, 18, there was a horrific car accident that left her paralyzed from the waist down. As a follower of Jesus Christ, God has shaped her, has, has taught her so much about suffering, and she has written so much about suffering in the Christian life. I have some of the most godliest people I've ever met have suffered the most in their life. This is what Joni Erickson Tata says, several quotes from things in her life and how she's experienced suffering. Sometimes God allows, she says, what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Think about this. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, she says, the closer his embrace. Listen to this. Suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. I love that. This is what Jesus does in our life. She says this, I'd learn that you can't wear a crown unless you bear a cross. That if our Savior had learned obedience through suffering, we should expect the same. She says, the weaker I am, the harder I must lean on God's grace. The harder that I lean on him, the stronger I discover him to be and the bolder my testimony to his grace. So true. I'll read you one more. She says this, true wisdom is found in trusting God when you cannot figure things out. How many times can we not figure things out in life? We trust him. You see, our suffering in life is part of the Christian life. Spiritual attacks, chronic pain, martyrdom we see happening around the world, being marginalized as a Christian, your friends at school turning the other way and not wanting to follow you or not wanting to be your friend anymore because you choose to pull out a Bible and you try to be like what Jesus wants and you try to strive what Jesus wants. When you look away from something they're all looking at and you reject something they're all looking at and you're marginalized, you're pushed aside. Maybe you get passed over for that promotion. There are two candidates, you and another person that are just as qualified. Maybe you're, you're more qualified, but because they find out about your faith and find out about what you believe and what you value in the word of God, you get passed over for the sake of the other person. Oh, there is suffering that comes in all forms and fashions in our life. There is suffering. In some cases, there is death. But here's the thing. We carry around the gospel of Jesus Christ in our sufferings in every way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this very thing, and he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You're a living testimony. You consistently do that. Verse 11 says, For we who live are always being given over to death to, for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You see, this is how Paul described his life. This is how Paul's describing to the church in Corinth how they were to think about their lives. We are not our own. We have been bought with a paid, with, with a price. And therefore, we think of that. We put our lives on the line for the sake of following Jesus with our hearts and when our li- with our lives. And by the way, when you do this, when you choose to take a stand for what the Word of God says, when you choose at school or at work or in our community, when you're in your casual conversations with anyone, when you choose to take a stand in our culture, in our community, both politically or professionally or in school, whatever the case may be, it will be met with rejection. But here's what suffering does. God uses it. Because what suffering does is he shapes you to be more like Jesus. He shapes you to be more like Christ. Suffering makes you more dependent upon Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abund- abundantly in comfort too. Isn't that awesome? Oh, yeah, there's suffering, but there's also just as powerful as the suffering is upon our life, so is the comfort that God provides upon us in our life. And suffering doesn't make us just make us more dependent upon Christ, but he reminds us that this is not our home. All the things that I'm trying to build in my life, all the things that I'm trying to do in my life will come to an end one day. And one day I'll step from this life into eternity. Suffering leads us to knowing Christ in a more intimate and deep way. And the aim of trusting Christ is to know Christ. So what does Paul say here? Verse 10, he's going to say that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. But he's not done. Because in verse 11, he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, knowing Christ leads to what? Eternal life. Knowing Christ, this walk, this journey through life, whether it's 90 to 100 years or it's 10, 15, 20 years God gives us here on earth. Oh, the goal is knowing Christ, which leads to eternal life. This is not the finish line. The finish line was not found here. It was found in eternity. Paul didn't care what happened to him to his, in his life that brought him to that destination, by the way. Oh, I'm sure he wouldn't have minded a little less beating. He wouldn't have minded a little less rejection. But his eyes wasn't on himself. When you read the New Testament, what you will see is his eyes are always on Christ and the finish line. And that drove and that dictated every area of his life, every decision that he made in his life, every area that he made, or every area that he found himself in. Knowing Christ leads to eternal life. There is the difference, there is a major difference between here and there. I want you to think about your life in terms of here and there. Here, God's made you for this purpose to know him, to walk in intimacy with him, to have that abundant life that is to propel you into holiness, that is to propel you into obedience, 
That is to propel you into walking faithfully and being faithful to him and following his word. It's not just to know about God. It's to propel you into obedience. There is a difference in here and there. Because here, God gives us the opportunity to have intimacy with him. There, there's rest and there's eternal life. But we're not there yet. There's eternal life. There's rest. There's reward. There's the end, the finish line. But we're not there yet. We're here. And what God calls us to do here as followers of Jesus Christ, what God wants you to do if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, is to know him, to have complete forgiveness of your sin, to be completely redeemed in your life, and to know him, and to be set on a lifelong place, a pathway to grow and to know him in an intimate way. Then you'll get to there. But you and I are here. Yesterday in this very spot, we spoke about a man in our church who passed away just a week ago, Anthony Colvin. His body laid right here. And we had his service in here yesterday. 64 years old, died of cancer. Died way too young. But I'll say this about his life. We glorified God yesterday and we honored his life yesterday in every way. And one of the things that I found incredible joy in and fulfillment in was the ability to stand on the stage and talk about his life in terms of the fact that he had made the most of his here on his way to there. Because while he was here, even though he suffered, even though he struggled, God gave him an opportunity to know him, to have an intimate relationship with him. And that began long before he could struggle to eat or struggle to drink in the latter months and weeks of his life. You see, long before that hospice nurse had to come to his bedside, Anthony had already decided in his heart who his Lord and Savior was and his relationship with Jesus Christ. What a powerful passage it is when we come to a passage that says the outer man is wasting away but the inner man is being renewed day by day. Y'all know what that means, right? You make the most of your here. Is there's going to come a day when you won't be able to? The inner life being renewed until you get to there. So what's your aim in life? What are you aiming for? The world is riddled with people who have been driven to seek a dream they will never achieve. Paul's ambition in life was to know him. And when you know him, you'll be conformed to him. And when you are conformed to him, you will make him known. And that's God's will for you. That's God's will for me. The Lord wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And what I would call us to do this morning as Christians, we're going to have a time to respond to him, not just sing a song, but to respond to him. I'm going to encourage you to do something maybe you've never done before. And that's, if God is speaking to you about knowing him in a more intimate and deeper way, to come forward and maybe just kneel here at the stairs and pray 
and just say, Lord, I want to know you in a deeper way. Would you just take my heart in a more deeper way? Even as a Christian, you just commit to that. And maybe there's some of you that would want to do that and be willing to do that from the balcony to the first floor. But if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, oh, that's the invitation to you. The God of the universe invites you to know him. The God who has his eyes on the other side of the world right now, on the seven plus billion people on this planet, has his eyes on you. And he wants you to know him. And he invites you to know him. The Bible says that God is perfect and holy in every way. There is no sin in him. Which is a problem because you and I are broken and we are sinners. Just look around us. We're at the mercy of a broken world, broken systems. We ourselves are broken. Because of our sin, we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God because sin can't be in his presence. And therein lies the dilemma. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God gives you and I the chance to know him, the chance for our sins to be forgiven once and for all, and for our lives to be made new. It requires you to admit that you're a sinner, to agree with God that you can't be saved on your own, to confess your sins over to him and allow him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And when you do that, oh, he will make himself known to you. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. There are going to be a few of us up at the, at the front of the stage this morning. If you're wanting to just come for prayer or any decision, if you just want to come and pray here at the front, if you want to come and give your life to Christ, if you want to come and join our church, if you want to come and be baptized, you come. The Lord's speaking to you about any other area of your life. Maybe it's ministry. God's calling, maybe calling you into ministry, mission, something. Respond to what God has been speaking to you about, okay? I'm going to pray, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing together and worship him. Father, thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you allow us to know you. We're not just here as a religious exercise, but God, in a personal way, you've invited us in. And Lord, for the, the rest of our lives, no matter how many years we have on earth, you have invited us in to know you in an intimate way. This is our here, and we want to know you. And we want to follow you. Pray that this morning that you would give us courage to respond to you in the ways that, God, you've been speaking to us. We give this time to you as we sing and we respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with us and let's sing together.
be seated this morning. Good worship as we close things out this morning. Hey, listen, a couple very quick announcements before we leave, and uh, then we're going to give as we leave this morning and worship through our giving, and then we'll head off to our classes. Uh, this morning, I uh, just want to mention very quickly, this coming Tuesday, we have our Widows and Widows Banquet. Uh, it's going to be a fun time, a very special time, and so that ladies, you should have been reached out to already. If you haven't, we apologize. Uh, maybe We've, uh, we've looked over that phone number or name, but um, we want to make sure you are, are invited and that you know about it. That's why I've mentioned it several times from here. And so that's coming up this coming Tuesday. And then don't forget, tonight we have our members meeting at 6 o'clock. We have a meal right before that at 5 o'clock. And so we want to encourage you to be a part of that. Um, should be fun together. It's cold outside, so now we can actually say it's a wintry night fellowship meal. You know, if it was 80 degrees outside, and we were like, winter, winter, but it is cold outside, so at least we can say it's a wintry night fellowship meal. How do you like that? We dialed that weather in for us. Um, no, so we want to mention that, and we hope to see you this evening, okay? Uh, one last thing, of course, is that we want to encourage you to give this morning our tithes and our offerings so that our ministry can continue here, and uh, we're doing uh, the ministry here locally as well as internationally, globally, what God's doing through us. Um, one of those ministries I'll highlight very quickly this past week at Grace Pregnancy right down the street from us had a ribbon-cutting ceremony. They have been working so diligently. Some of us in the room have worked physically on that structure, on that building, and they had their official ribbon-cutting ceremony for the part that is finished, and it is incredible to see what God's done there, and uh, through our giving on Sundays, uh, we, as part of our budget, we give faithfully to, uh, to Grace Pregnancy, and we've increased our giving to that ministry here locally in light of all that's happened in the state of Texas, and 
um, to reach mothers. And she was telling me, uh, Misty, who is the director of Grace, just told me this past week when I attended that, she said, just in the month of January, we had almost 100 clients just in the month of January. That is staggering if you know the numbers that they've experienced in the last two or three years. And so it has just uh, been a busy year as they've started and very, very thankful for what uh, we do. So when we give, we give to ministries and things of that nature, not just in our community, but here locally. Um, so let's give our tithes, let's give our offerings over and above our tithes. And so you can give in person this morning. You can drop them off in the boxes as you leave. You can give online through our website. You can give dropping off at the church office, however you'd like to do that, okay? Let's stand. Let's have a quick word of prayer, and we're going to commit those offerings and tithes into God's hand that he would multiply those. Father, thank you this morning for the gift of our church and the time that we've had to worship you, time to be together. Thank you to our guests who are here. We pray that they have been welcomed well and will be welcomed after our service today. Thank you for... Uh, decisions that were made today and are being contemplated. We pray as Christians that we would know you in a deeper way as we start this week. And Lord, as you send us into this community and into the world, we pray that you would point us to people who need Jesus Christ so desperately in our community and give us the courage to share it with them this week, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.